It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 395 for June 1st, 2014. This week, Opera, the web browser that has consistently maintained a policy of working within the World Wide Web Consortium standards, is a browser that more people should consider. If you'd like better email security, but thoughts of public keys and private keys and encryption sound like old church Slavonic to your ears, take a look at Proton Mail. In short circuits, a hacker turned informant avoids a long prison sentence. Even so, a survey of business and government officials says hackers are winning. And Intuit acquires check in a bid for more mobile capabilities. The opera ain't over until the fat lady sings. According to Wikipedia, the first recorded use of that phrase was in the Dallas Morning News on the 10th of March, 1976, by journalist Ralph Carpenter. That was at least two decades before some programmers in Norway created the first version of the Opera web browser. From its inception, Opera was designed to follow standards set by the World Wide Web Consortium. At a time when Microsoft and Netscape did everything they could to create proprietary features, Opera insisted on creating a browser that just worked. Today, it has only a tiny user base, but maybe it's time to take another look. Recently, I said my primary browser was Chrome and my secondary browser was Maxthon. Although Maxthon is an impressive browser, I wondered if Opera might not be a better second choice. After some testing, I decided it is definitely a good choice for second place, and it might be worth considering as my primary browser on the desktop. On Android tablets, Opera is already my primary browser. Opera calls its initial screen Speed Dial, and unlike a similar screen on Chrome, it's easy to add URLs to the Speed Dial screen and to rearrange them. You can also choose whether the displayed thumbnails are large or small. Sites such as Facebook and Amazon display just plain images, but Opera preloads enough of sites that change frequently, like that from the New York Times or the TechBiter Worldwide website, for example, to display an image of the current page. On an Android tablet, the speed dial screen is even more important than on a desktop system because it provides immediate access to sites you visit frequently without typing. Opera has always appealed to me because it supported standards from the beginning, back at the time when Microsoft and Netscape simply competed with each other to see which could create the more incompatible features, Opera chose another path. There always seem to be some minor shortcomings, though, and I always return to one of the better-known browsers. The speed dial screen I mentioned is just one of three specialized screens. The others are called Stash and Discover. After adding URLs to the speed dial screen, you can change the name that's displayed. It's also easy to drag the thumbnail images around to rearrange the order. The Discover screen is essentially a news page. Select from a baker's dozen of categories to see the top stories in each category. Customization is a bit limited. You can select the country you live in and then decide which of the 13 categories you want to display on the menu. 
Perhaps the developers will someday make it possible to create your own categories, or to add sources within the given categories. But even with the limitations I've described, Discover provides a quick overview of the news. Stash is unique. If you've ever found something online that you wanted to read but didn't have time right then, what did you do? Maybe you thought you'd remember to go back later. Well, I always forgot to do that. Or maybe you copied the URL and sent an email message to yourself. I did that frequently too, but the message always ended up buried under hundreds of other messages and I simply forgot about it. Or perhaps you pasted the link into a text file or a Word document or a OneNote page. I've done all those and I forgot about them. Stash is where you can place those URLs so that they're always handy right there in the browser. When you find a page you want to read later, just click the heart icon in the address bar. Then when you visit the Stash page, you'll see more than just a URL. You'll see enough of the page that you'll probably be able to remember why you wanted to read the page in the first place, or why it's no longer important to read the page. You'll see a slider at the right-hand side of the Stash page. That allows you to change the size of the page displays. When you've read a page or you no longer need the reminder, just click the X in the upper right-hand corner of the Stashed page and dismiss it. The bottom line for Opera, four cats. Opera is a solid browser on the desktop and perfect on an Android device. The only shortcoming Opera has is its relative lack of add-ons and plugins. The built-in features largely make up for that unless you need the kinds of tools that developers like to have installed. The operation is smooth, the interface is clean. Opera probably will continue to attract just a relatively small audience. That's unfortunate because those who don't give it a try will never know what they're missing. You'll find more details, and you can download it, from the Opera website. There is, of course, a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The technology used for email dates back to the very earliest days of network technology, which is to say it's not very secure. Unless you encrypt the message, it is sent across the public internet in plain text. ProtonMail, with servers housed in Switzerland, is the project of three developers with the goal of making security usable by people who know nothing about encryption, public keys, or private keys. So far, they seem to be doing a pretty good job. One pundit wrote that even the NSA can't crack this system. Well, that's wrong. What's more, I found nothing on the ProtonMail site that comes even close to making such a silly claim. But the pieces of the system are fitted together in a way that clearly makes security very tight. For example, you need one password to log on and another to encrypt or decrypt your messages. ProtonMail was founded in 2013 at the European Organization for Nuclear Research. You may know it better as CERN. C-E-R-N. Among other things, CERN is responsible for the World Wide Web. Not the Internet, just the web part. And, of course, for the Large Hadron Collider, used for particle physics experiments. Andy Yen, Jason Stockman, and Wei Sun wanted to create what they call a more secure and private Internet. 
ProtonMail is developed jointly at CERN and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The project was a semi-finalist in the 2014 MIT 100K Startup Launch Competition, and the MIT Venture Mentoring Service provides advice. Accounts are available right now by invitation only, so you may have to wait a while after signing up for an account. When signing up for an account, you'll need to create a username and a login password. Make it a strong one, but this password can be changed later. After the account has been approved, you'll receive a message that invites you to log on. At that time, you'll create another password. In fact, this is your encryption key, but password sounds a lot easier, so most people will probably want to think of it that way. This should be a string of letters, uppercase and lowercase, numbers, and symbols. Longer is better, but you must remember it. The encryption password cannot be changed later, and if it's lost, it can't be replaced. Perhaps you're wondering why the service is located in Switzerland. Here's what it says on the website. All user data is protected by the Swiss Federal Data Protection Act, DPA, and the Swiss Federal Data Protection Ordinance, DPO, which offer some of the strongest privacy protection in the world for both individuals and entities. Only a court order from the Cantonal Court of Geneva or the Swiss Federal Supreme Court can compel us to release the extremely limited user information we have. Here's how it works, and you'll find some images on the TechBiter Worldwide website so you can follow along. At login time, you'll be asked for your username, I selected TechBiter, your login password, and if you take a look at the images, you'll note that mine is relatively long. You can't see it, but it's relatively long. And to prove that you're a real person instead of a machine, you'll need to read and respond to a completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart, better known as CAPTCHA. The CAPTCHA changes each time you log on, so it's safe for me to display mine on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and I did. After the login has been authenticated, you then need to provide your second password to decrypt the mailbox. My encryption key is also long and complex. It's something that looks like this, and this is not my real encryption password. Uppercase X, 9, uppercase Q, 4, 3, lowercase m, lowercase j, 9, pound sign, uppercase m, uppercase z, at sign, uppercase e, lowercase o, lowercase h. And that is a password you definitely don't want to forget because, as I said, it can't be replaced. And without it, your mailbox can't be opened. Why can't ProtonMail tell you what the password is if you forget it? Well, again, the website. We do not save this information on our servers. We never have access to your decryption password, and as a result, we cannot recover something we don't have. When you open the decrypted mailbox, you'll see that it has a fairly typical webmail interface with options to compose a new message, continue working on a saved draft, read messages you've received, or examine messages you've sent. Most encryption systems I've seen work only when both the sender and the receiver have accounts that use the same system. ProtonMail gets around this issue easily by providing an option to encrypt for outside users. Check that box, and it will still encrypt your message, but instead of sending the encrypted message to an outside user who probably would have no idea what to do with it, ProtonMail sends a message with a link and, optionally, a clue about the password you used to encrypt this individual message. 
A more secure method would, of course, involve working out a password or perhaps a series of passwords with the person who's going to be receiving those encrypted messages so you don't have to provide hints. Once the user receives the message from ProtonMail, he or she can follow the link, provide the appropriate password, and decrypt the message. The message is displayed on screen. Ah, you're thinking, well, that's being sent over the internet in plain text. Well, no, it's not. It's an encrypted connection. So the message is sent encrypted over the internet. How much does all this cost? Well, according to Wei San, who is the resident cryptology expert, the intent is to provide a free version of the application with some limits placed on either the amount of storage permitted or the number of messages handled per month or both. We haven't decided yet what would be the limitation number for storage and sent messages per month, he said. We put 100 megabytes and 500 messages per month during the beta testing phase, but he says he expects this will be substantially the same following the product launch. I asked if users of the free service would see advertisements. I was told they will not. ProtonMail will use what he called the Dropbox model, by which users who need more than what the free account provides will pay. There are also plans for an enterprise version of ProtonMail, but that would happen only after the consumer product launch. Bottom line on ProtonMail, it's still in beta, so I can't give it a cat rating, but it does look promising. ProtonMail goes a long way toward making security usable. No PGP public key to manage. No PGP private key to manage. If you're interested in keeping email messages private, this is worth checking out. Additional details are on the ProtonMail website, and there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, Hector Xavier Monsegur, also known as Cebu, was a member of LulzSec. That's an organization that staged numerous attacks against business and government websites. After being caught, he became an informant for the FBI. Instead of being sentenced to as much as 25 years in prison, he has now been released. Monsegur has been credited with assisting the FBI in preventing several hundred website attacks. As a result, U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska reduced his sentence to the time he'd already served after Assistant U.S. Attorney James Pastor asked for leniency because the former hacker was able to thwart outright or minimize hundreds of attacks. In August 2011, the former anonymous hacker pleaded guilty to 12 crimes and immediately began cooperating with the FBI. Judge Preska made note of that, saying that his quick decision to change direction and assist the government weighed in his favor. You've done as much as any human being can do, she said, in terms of helping the government to make up for past wrongs and to avert other damage to probably millions of people. In court this week, Monsignor apologized for the harm he caused and promised not to engage in any future cyber attacks. Despite high-profile cases such as the anonymous hacker who assisted government investigators, hackers are winning. At least that's the opinion of 500 people in business, government, and law enforcement who were surveyed by the Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, and CSO Security News, a magazine. CERT is part of Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute, and it works closely with the Department of Homeland Security. This is the 12th time the annual survey has been conducted. 
Although businesses are using more high-tech defenses than ever before, crooks seem to be even more determined to steal information. About 75% of respondents said they had experienced a security breach in the past year, and most of them said they had detected multiple intrusions. The average number of intrusions reported, and you may be shocked to hear this, 135 per organization. That's the average. And this will surprise you too, but it probably shouldn't. More than a quarter of the respondents, 28% in fact, said attacks were launched by people inside the organization, contractors or current employees, by former employees, or by companies that provide services to the organization. In other words, apparently by friends. The most common methods of gaining illegal access involve planting malware on victims' computers, phishing email messages, network interruptions, spyware, and distributed denial-of-service attacks. Secret Service Criminal Investigative Division head Ed Lowry says that criminals continue to find ways to circumvent systems that have been designed to keep criminals out. A radical change in methods is needed, Lowry said, something well beyond the standard antivirus software and such. In a recent review of Quicken 2014, I mentioned the need for components that would allow users more flexibility with portable devices. Apparently Intuit's managers were thinking the same thing, and this week they announced plans to acquire Check, a relatively new company that gives people a way to pay bills via phones and tablets. Check has been around for six years. Initially, it was called Page Once and had a different focus, but the developers saw better options in creating an application that could help people manage bills on portable devices. It would appear this was a good decision because the company has nearly 10 million users. This isn't into its first acquisition as it attempts to follow users from desktop and notebook systems to mobile devices. An earlier acquisition, Mint, is essentially a lightweight version of Quicken. Intuit says that Quicken and Mint allow users to review their finances and make budgets, while Check will make it possible to work more interactively with their money on a real-time basis. And very quickly, check out the website this week, a video extra, Kids and Computers. All you need is about seven minutes and a desire to have a little fun. Watch these kids as they meet some computers from the late 1970s and early 1980s. And by way of a hint, they are not impressed. You'll find it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.